Continuous improvement comes in lots of different flavors and styles. I'm Bella Engelbach, and I'm inviting you to journey with me to the edges of lean. Episode 105, Continuously Improving Elections with Carrie L. Bass. I hope you're a voter. It's such an important civic responsibility. As a voter and a continuous improvement professional, have you ever thought about how the process of elections might be improved to help make everyone confident that elections are secure and fair? Carrie L. Bass has. He's here to share his insight and tell us about some important continuous improvement work happening in the U.S. around our election process. Carrie L. Bass, welcome to the Ages of Lean. Good morning. It's really nice to have you here, Carrie. And as I told you, uh, as we're preparing for this podcast, I'm excited about this podcast because it combines two of my very favorite, most important uh, factors of my life, which is, and of course, it's all about me, um, which is lean and also elections. Uh, So could you please tell us about yourself? You have a very distinguished career. Tell us about yourself and what you're doing now. Sure. Um, I uh, being around as long as I am, you've probably done a few things, but probably the most uh, significant relevant things to know is uh, I'm a Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt. I uh, also am a uh, senior member with ASQ, the American Society of Quality, and I'm serving this year as their treasurer. ASQ is a 75-year-old global nonprofit focused on the quality profession and in various aspects, including lean and those other areas. And uh, I'm uh, a uh, also a uh, have a very uh, small boutique uh, consulting practice, management consulting, where I focus on being able to help organizations be able to uh, implement strategies, uh, assess where they are, and be able to implement change to to accomplish major success. So, tell us about your work with um, elections um, and, and what you do there. Sure. Um, the uh, ASQ uh, after the 2020 elections uh, did a uh, created a study group and put out a position paper in support of ISO standard 54001, which is a uh, derivative of ISO 9001. If many of you know that, that's kind of a universal quality management uh, practice to be able to be applied to elections. Um, ISO 54001 has a number of components, but it didn't really fit the focus of American elections or many democratic elections that are similarly situated around the country. So ASQ formed what we call the Center for Electoral Quality and Integrity with the idea of being able to take the general practices of quality and lean management and the uh, the association of being able to fulfill customer and client expectations to apply that to our electoral systems. Because uh, in democracies and in like the United States, elections are key to the fundamental operations of democracy. Well, that's really important work. And I think we should talk about for a minute how elections are run in the U.S., because I know some of the folks who listen are not in the U.S. And I also know from talking to voters, a lot of voters don't really know a lot about how elections are run. So I think one of the things that's important 
but for people to know is in the U.S., elections can actually be run differently from state to state, right? There's Absolutely. every state, every state secretary of state or similar positions um, is, I guess, responsible for the elections, but they're exactly how the elections are run a little bit different. So are there standards, were there standards before that about how states should meet certain requirements in order to be a U.S. election? Well, um, the, the way to look at the U.S. elections, and um, uh, you really need to think about how the U.S. country is organized uh, from a governmental standpoint. We are a constitutional uh, uh, republic, which means that we are a collection of individual organizations that are have a overall governing law, the United States Constitution. The Constitution has some basic uh, rules about who can vote and that states must administer elections. Uh, they also have the only one national election that we have, and that is for the the uh, the electoral college that actually elects the president and the president only. Uh, but that is in co uh, in coordination with those state elections that are uh, throughout the rest of the United States. And elections go all the way from that big national election, which is the one that everybody pays attention to, all the way down to very, very local elections. It could be a, uh, a commissioner or a council person from your neighborhood or a school board member or, um, you know, some some other organization that's is part of the government, but is much smaller, much, much, much more local. So it's very complicated, right? Yes. Yeah, but... Yeah, each uh, under the Constitution, the Constitution empowers each state to decide their own political divisions and then the administration of the elections. The one rule that they do have is that they have to have elections. They do have a few people that they can say ha that are eligible to vote, uh, but they allow the states to set up all the rules around where those voting uh, locations are the operations of those uh, uh, polls, as they uh, recall them, and also uh, in the designation of political divisions, how far and how many elected officials there are, with the exception of Congress. Right, right, which is established by the Constitution. Right. Wow. Yeah, so the, the complexity is is massive, and uh, the complexity of then it sounds like of all the different ways that a, a a state and below a state, a county or a parish might actually run an election. The, there's a huge amount of variety there, right? That, so. There is, yeah. And and the consistency level is dictated by state law. And so state laws provide the, uh, the more granular uh, boundaries of how those elections can and should be operated. But in each municipality, all the way down to the municipal level, there are administrative rules and locations of polls and those type of things. And the recruitment and training of election officials and volunteers to be engaged in the process are controlled quite locally. Yeah, and that's a, I think that's a big was a big surprise to me when I started to get really deeply involved in, in local politics was that. I had always imagined that the people in, who were working in my polling place that, you know, there was some um, 
really well-oiled machine that was getting them there. But behind the scenes, what I learned was it's it's sort of a frantic rush every yes. election. You know, there are people who are elected to some of those positions, but then they they resign or they move and so they can't do anymore. And then there are other people who volunteer and maybe they're available one election and not another election. Um, in Pennsylvania, where I live, um, uh, it's a very, very long day. You have to start before seven o'clock in the morning and you're not done till maybe nine, 10 o'clock at night. You have to be the whole the whole day and you're not paid very much for a paid election worker. So not many people can actually do it. It really limits the number of people to do it. So there's all this stuff going on behind the scenes that I wasn't aware of. Uh, just to get people there, never mind what needs to happen in order to train them on this very complex system. Yes. But let's talk about the 2020 election. So as a leading up to the 2020 election in the U.S., and certainly after the 2020 election in the U.S., there were a lot of people who did not, and some who still do not, trust the election results. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. What do you see as being some of the reasons for, um, you know, beyond people who are really into conspiracy theories, but the, the reasons that people feel that they can't trust elections? Well, um, I think that one of the biggest issues is that complexity and the, the lack of familiarity and, and uh, view inside of the way that the system runs. One of the things that I found in research and working with the center is that the majority of people that actually go and observe elections actually find out that they are run very well and that there are a lot of people that have a great deal of honesty uh, and, uh, and integrity in actually carrying out those elections. But because bad news is so prevalent and good news is so minimal, people get discouraged because mostly what they hear is the bad news, the, the minimal exceptions that uh, cause people to have concerns about their, uh, their vote and their electoral officials. And I, I really, I think that's true, Carrie, because I said that was certainly something that I saw once I started to see and got involved kind of behind the scenes and how elections were run. I was it was almost surprising to me that people would think that, you know, these various nefarious things could happen if they knew how, at least where I am, how tightly run it all is and how carefully people work on it. And the thing that impressed me the most was that even though everybody who's working on the election belongs to one or other or maybe a third political party, as they are working as an election worker, they are usually very non-biased and very careful to follow all of the rules for keeping the election secure. Yes. So, um, but you have to go see, right? So in Lean, we talk about, you know, going to the Gamba, going to the actual place, going and seeing. Most people don't have that opportunity to go and right. see. Now, right. um, and I know a lot of, you know, a lot of places now are, are putting, you know, cameras in, in so you can go watch a live feed of, say, mail-in ballots being counted, things like that. But even then, it's, as we know from some of the, the um, misinterpretations of those live feeds, people don't really know what's what's happening yeah so so what what is this asq group proposing what have you proposed and what do you think um and what are people taking forward well what asq is is proposing is that 
you were right spot on in that uh, Gimba is that you have to be able to go to the place where the work is done and be able to see for yourself. And so uh, due to the impracticality of that being uh, uh, a universally uh, available thing, what ASQ is, is offering is our objectivity and our skills in being able to observe and provide quality assessments to be able to be a substitute for the public in those gimbas. And so uh, a, one of the things that we are proposing is that uh, we wanted to define, uh, well, there's another quality principle that I wanted to go back and cover too. And that has to yeah. do with perceptions of uh, individuals. There's a uh, scientist by the name of Noriaki Kano, uh, lives in Japan, uh, a, a very distinguished quality expert. Uh, I had an opportunity to have him in a presentation that I gave along these lines last June and in uh, presenting some of these things. And, then, um, and his principle is that there are multiple levels of quality and there is the must-have quality, which means that, that you have to operate at a certain level of performance uh, that people expect. People expect for the elections to be held on time. They expect for the elections to be fair. And they expect that that the people that are running the elections know what they're going to do. Um, and so uh, as long as you are meeting those basic expectations, then people are generally neutral. They won't be excited, but they will be very dissatisfied if they find out there's a failure in those basic levels of assumptions. The next level is that you need to understand what the uh, and gather what the 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 customers or in this case the voters expect and then be able to show that you understood what they wanted and that you gave it to them and so that's the uh the level that you begin to get as performance uh, is tied to and quality and, and the expectation is tied to the performance of those uh, uh meeting client expectations the third level is the very highest level is where you anticipate what your clients want and you give it to them before they ask you about it. And that's called customer delight. And so we are we are operating very, very well at that must have level of quality. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do then is establish what that baseline is of what do customers expect, voters expect out of their elections from a quality standpoint and from an integrity standpoint. And how would a, and that's by asking the voters, what do you expect, you know, your elections to look like and how do you know and what would make you feel comfortable that your vote is handled appropriately and that there's a high level of integrity in the elections. So that's what we proposed is to be able to establish that baseline for a national perspective and then set up a process that each state can be able to confirm on their own basis what do their voters expect out of their elections from operations and integrity standpoint, and then be able to demonstrate that back by an objective observer, ASQ, or the people that we train to be designated examiners uh, to confirm that each state is actually operating well and meeting, and they gathered the expectations of their voters and they're meeting it and that we would be able to objectively confirm that to voters. 
kind of like so this, a, a underwriter laboratory or something like that. Wow. So, and and I'm, my mind is just reeling with you know all, all the, the the possibilities here. So, when you go to vote, you will often see poll watchers in the polling place, right? Yes. Uh, the poll watcher, and and you and and for people who are listening, uh, and if you, when you vote in person, when you, if there is somebody in the polling place as a poll watcher, and you can see some identification, they don't always have the identification that they are a poll watcher. What's important for you to know is they are usually there from one from a political party, party. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what they are looking for are, are there any violations of electoral law, particularly those violations that that particular party thinks are important? So if they, I'm not going to name parties here, but you can probably figure it out if you're you if you live in the U.S. So one party is, is very, very interested in making sure that everybody's allowed to vote. And if you, you know, for some reason, you you know, it looks like you're not registered, the, the judge of elections allows you to at least vote on a provisional ballot, you know, so really expanding the, the voting rights and making sure that people are allowed to vote. Whereas, uh, you know, there may be another party that is more interested in making sure that people who shouldn't be voting aren't voting. And so they may be challenging voters who come in. And so what the poll watchers are in there, people kind of watching to make sure the law is followed, but it's not in that nonpartisan way that you're talking about. Right? Exactly. exactly. And also, there is no set standard to train those poll watchers that's consistent across. Uh, generally, the training is by those parties themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The training is by the party. And so what is highlighted in the election law for them to pay attention to may be different and they may be trained differently on how to approach situations. Um, and Pennsylvania election law is pretty clear about who a poll watcher can speak to and what they can, you know, what, what they what they can say and how obstreperous they can be. But still, it's um, it's it is still a partisan activity, and you're talking of something that's nonpartisan. So, but Carrie, let's dive into these customer needs and wants and things that would delight customers, right? And customers being voters. Um, uh, so, I think the challenge there has got to be what we just talked about: that people of different political persuasions have different um, different. Uh, needs and wants or believe they have different needs and wants regarding elections and election integrity it's, yeah. are, are, are there things that how do you how do you deal with that well the the, the state laws are actually pretty well uh, uh documented and many states are able to uh to develop a uh, uh laws that put boundaries on both ends of those uh, spectrums for instance one of the things that i found is that in general, every voter expects that only valid voters are allowed to vote. Now, what are the rules around that and how well are they performed? That's one of the measures that we would suggest that elections and states be able to start uh, 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 providing to their voters, their citizens, their customers of the elections. And that is to say, of all the people that are registered to vote, these are the people that uh, uh, the number that that are valid voters. And we confirm that. And this is the actual percentage 
of invalid voters that we have been able to confirm that voted uh, or 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 provide cast invalid votes because they were not eligible. So that is one of the easier ways to be able to do that. And that information generally is available right now. Another area, so, I'm sorry. So I'm just thinking, so would that be a metric, but then then a board of elections might publish. So I would I, you know, when the final election result comes out, um, you will see how many people uh, did vote on a provisional ballot, for example. But then, you, but then if you also showed a metric of, you know, three of the provisional ballots were not accepted. Exactly. And 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 that's that's one of those holes that I think that uh would get over some of those negative stories and negative perceptions that that the wrong people or ineligible or fictitious people are voting. Mm -hmm. The other thing that is uh, uh and it's it's a constant discussion uh here in Georgia and in other states is whether uh, eligible voters are actually allowed to vote or given free access to the polls. And right. so um, that's one of the things that that is really big. And, and it really has to do more with a process and accessibility uh, uh, pro, uh, uh, problem. Uh, in some polls, in some areas, the uh, access to the poll is only takes a very short period of time, only a few minutes. But then in other locations, and it seems to be those locations that have higher densities of populations where generally there are higher, more diverse populations or younger people, those voting places do not seem to have the capability of allowing that same level of throughput. And so I personally, have waited as much as four hours on multiple attempts to cast a vote in Cobb County, Georgia. So, uh, but then there's other places in Georgia where my uh, fellow citizens didn't wait at all. They walked into the polls and cast their ballot. And cast and a so, vote, yeah. So that, you know, that disparity uh, sets up an opportunity for people to say, well, if you want me, to, you're trying to discourage my vote, uh, versus the people that are allowed to vote because they have adequate numbers of machines, their polling locations are available for their citizenry, whatever. Those are another area that might be something to look at to be able to 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 dispel that view that uh, that disenfranchisement is happening in rampant. Right, and and it's. You know, we we see this on the news when there's an election, especially when there are some, you know, something that's very hotly contested. And in Georgia, you've had these um, Senate races that, that yes. were, yes. Um, you know, and governor that were, you know, everybody across the country was watching those and to, you know, to see what would happen. And, you know, we saw those lines um, on, on the television. Yes. When people see that, right, that says to somebody, um, well, I don't have four hours, right? Who's going to watch my kids? Exactly. Um, I got to get, I, I'm not, can't be late to work today. Exactly. Um, if you know, I don't have four hours when I get off work to vote. Um, and, and to me, there's, there's, there's a tension there because I could see from a lean perspective, Carrie, would it be great if every county election board, uh, uh, you know, a state election, you know, a secretary of state published their throughput, right? Exactly. Yeah, I would lead people. Exactly. We'd be going, yeah, look at that, you know. All right, and who has great throughput? And can we go learn from what they did? 
but there's also this uh, so this uh, is there an intention behind it from the state legislature to decrease the throughput and you know and to make it harder and that's um you know i don't know that that's something can we deal with that from a quality perspective well the, you know if uh, if if indeed that uh that the legislatures want elections to be free and fair then they would need to be able to promote the equal access or equitable access to the polls. And that's one way you can do it, just a simple throughput measure. Uh, one way, and a benchmark example, is uh, one of our uh, uh, advisory members, a member of the advisory council of the uh, um, Center for Electoral Quality and Integrity is uh, Eric Fay of St. Louis County, Missouri. And St. Louis County, Missouri, uh, is is a uh, a kind of an oasis in the rest of the state because they are allowed to actually have some very uh, equitable rules that allows them to manage their throughput of elections very efficiently. And they did a quick, simple thing, and that is that they allow registered voters, valid voters, to vote in any precinct in the state because of electional, the, the electronic voting log, logs allow every eligible voter to be known at every precinct. And so therefore they can produce the ballot for that eligible voter on the voting uh, system that's valid just to the races that that voter is eligible to vote on, regardless of where they vote in the county. And on top of that, they've created an uh, uh, app that people with their smartphones can be able to look at the throughput of each polling place in the county and decide for themselves that if a county has a backlog, I mean, a, a precinct has a backlog, they can go to another precinct that doesn't have a backlog and cast their ballot. It's like it's like the wait times at Disney World, right? Um, exactly. You, can, yeah. you just look at that on your phone and say, I'm not doing that ride right now. I'll wait till later. Wow. Wow. So, so if you are working 30 miles from where you live, you can go on your lunch hour and vote and they'll give you the ballot that will have your local school board election exactly. on it. Oh, exactly. uh, wow. Wow. So, but then, so then there's a lot of um, behind the scenes then in terms of software and software development and software um, and quality. Um, and so how are they handling that? How did they, because, because, with any time we digitize something that uh, that in some ways can decrease the level of trust right you know because well, it, I, you know we you don't know what's happening in the code it, it can uh and and that's one of the things that that uh that can happen but we've been doing software for a very very long time yeah. and we know how through independent validation and verification process as a matter of fact there is a standard uh, a uh, IEEE standard that allows the exact observation of the development and operations of software to be confirmed by an independent validator, just like we're talking about for the election process overall. And they have been doing uh, electronic balloting for a long time. Matter of fact, one of the the uh, places that I visited is um, I, I went to visit Estonia. Estonia is a leader in uh, digital government, and they actually deliver their elections via the internet, uh, and which is kind of surprising, not trying to disparage anybody, but they border on Russia, and they quite mm -hmm. regularly 
uh, are subject to uh, uh, cyber attacks, uh, even though they are allowing electronic voting uh, in their their country. And so they're able to successfully manage elections electronically in a country that's smaller than the size of metropolitan Atlanta. That's incredible. And, and I was, and I, so I'm just thinking, this is amazing because, you know, one of the reasons it takes so long to get home um, on election day is because every single ballot, um, you know, that has, you know, we have to count all of the ballots that have not been distributed to make sure that there are no extra ballots or missing ballots, right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. If you're producing the ballot essentially on demand, mm-hmm. yeah, um, you know, it's, uh, which is a, you know, a great way to, to run a supply chain you know, to be able to produce on on demand, then um, you don't have that that work, that wasteful work of having to to count and check afterwards. One That's, one other uh, idea that I have not seen, but I just you know talked with several of my colleagues about, is that we have software technology that allows you to have an independent tag on a transaction, so uh, a voter can get their ballot number. And that ballot number can be uh, confidential and it can be de-identifiable and such that individual voters can be able to, if the if they so chose, they could list every ballot that was counted in the tallies of the vote. And an individual voter could go into the tally if it was available and uh, see that their individual ballot number was counted in the tally of that vote. And that would allow them to have electronic verification that their vote actually counted, which is one of the things that that uh, voter customers expect is that my vote was actually counted. Right, yeah, which is one of the things that that's, um, that's interesting about voting by mail, at least in Pennsylvania. When you vote by mail in Pennsylvania, you do get some kind of tracking. You will right. actually get a, an email back um, you know, saying that your ballot has been received and then you get another email when it's been counted, um, which people who vote in person actually don't get that. You know, right. they know that they they put their ballot into the scanner because we vote by scanner here, but they don't know whether, you know, exactly how when it when that um, uh, drive from the scanner was taken to the, um, you know, to the big uh, the big counting place in the sky or actually it's in. It's in Chester, Pennsylvania, right. close to me, but but um, and how it was all counted. So that you know that I, so people complain about mail-in voting as being lack of transparency. But before a mail-in voter, it's actually more transparency exactly. because you, um, particularly if you put it in a Dropbox rather than putting it in the mail, because a couple it only takes a couple of days to find out yeah we received it yeah, exactly it, so. exactly so we know that those technological uh solutions exist and they are already in use so the the uh the logical expectation then is that that should be deployed more generally for to increase voter acceptance of elections so is that is that a need or is that a delight i mean what is what that, is what rises to the level of being something that really delights? What's you know what's the sound of the Lexus door closing, if you know what I mean? Well, that, I, um, I think that last piece that I said was more of a delighter. 
uh, uh -huh. to confirm that my vote was actually in the particular tallies of each other. Of, I can confirm all the way from front to end what my vote was in the right tally. Uh, I think that would be more of a delighter. Another yeah. delighter would be uh, that I can vote when it's uh, convenient for me without having to go to a poll, kind of like the uh, Estonian elections in that I can vote when I want to uh, up to a certain you know time frame mm -hmm. uh, uh, from a, a area or means that's most convenient to me. Um, right. those, those are things that you know might be uh, more right. along the lights. I, I think though the that the wants are pretty well summed up in that people want to be able to vote uh, that are eligible within a reasonable time frame. And that they want to be able to ensure that my vote counted. The other expectation is, is that other people that are not eligible vote, their vote did not dilute val valid voters' votes. And that, that we have confidence that, yeah, the right person won. And that goes then to the management then of registration records. As exactly. well, So it's not just voting records, but also management of registration records. And that's really tricky. Carry because people move. I mean, yes. they move all the time. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, people become eligible to vote because they turned 18. And sometimes people lose their eligibility to vote because of a, um, you know, because of a, a crime they've committed or you know, something like that. Or they lose their eligibility in particular um, precinct or area mm -hmm. because they've just moved out of the area and now they're, they're living somewhere else. Um, and and one of the things that I learned that I didn't realize before was that, say, I live in Pennsylvania. If I got up and moved to, to New Jersey and I registered to vote in New Jersey, New Jersey is not going to tell Pennsylvania that I registered in, Pen in New Jersey, right? So my registration would remain active in Pennsylvania until the voter rolls were purged, um, which which they do occasionally. There is another, so, uh, and it's and it's unfortunate, uh, but there was a state-based system to be able to address that very problem. It's called the Electronic Records Information Commission, uh, Registration uh, uh, Information uh, Commission, and that was ran by the states. It was a nonprofit that the states organized among themselves to be able to uh, keep track of the valid voters in each state. And so the system would automatically flag that if a person was uh, 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 registered in more than one Eric state. And so that was one of the ways to ensure in almost real time that a voter was not registered in two states. Um, unfortunately, that has gotten caught up in some of the politics and uh, and misinformation. And actually, states are now dropping out of the ERIC system and adopting nothing. So instead of being able to detect the duplication of voter registration among the states, they now are opting to open up their voter registration to say that people can be vote registered in multiple states. So disinformation can actually be very dangerous and harmful and mm -hmm. work to the opposite effect of what uh, the intention is. What kind of uptake have you had um, 
from the from the work you're doing? How how, well, how are election boards and states responding? We're building we're building the process uh, fairly slowly. Uh, we're we're working to build our infrastructure and first be able to establish that baseline system. So we're working with businesses and other organizations to be able to get the funding to to set up a baseline polling uh, type of organization that allows each state to be able to establish that baseline. We're working with other electoral organizations to be able to help uh, the, uh, to bring awareness of this capability and this offering to the states among themselves. Um, there is a number of associations that election officials belong to that uh, uh, that actually help provide training for that basic operation of elections. And so our center is becoming members of those organizations and having conversations to be aware. So we're in the just beginning stages of it. We get the advisory board in place. Uh, and so when uh, in the we're beginning to uh, to uh, make available a self-awareness kit where individual states and their election uh, organizations can be able to look on themselves and look at our process and then be able to see uh, how to work with us to get validation. So how would an election bureau get that self-awareness kit? There, there's a, uh, a website. It's called the CEQI dot, uh, at ASQ.org. That's the uh, email address for the Center for Electoral Quality org. And we have elections.asq.org is the website that you can be able to find out more about that particular um, uh, service and the operations and the where we are in developing this this uh, process. And and possibly be part of developing the process as Absolutely. well, right? Well, welcome, welcome all. And we really particularly would love to get more states uh, engaged in being able to help define these processes. Wow, it's it's so needed, um, and so and I really really wish you all the best for, for for moving forward. And I do encourage people listening to the podcast to reach out to Carrie, um, to reach out to ASQ, to um, you know to learn more to go to, to go to the website. Um, Carrie, tell us a little bit about the consulting work that you're doing right now outside of of what you the work you do with ASQ. Sure. Um, one of the things that I've really gotten hooked on is being able to uh, help lead organizations and individuals through change and transformation. Uh, and so my boutique practice, that's what I focus on, is being able to help leaders be able to refine and, and align their strategies with their organizations and then be able to accelerate that change to be able to be more successful in a very timely uh, manner. And I work. Uh, I I spent a good bit of time working with governmental organizations, and so that's my preference right at the top. But I also work with uh, not-for-profit and commercial organizations too. That sounds that sounds great. And also, um, as we all know, there's so much need for for all of this kind of thinking um, everywhere in every sector of business and nonprofits and elections. Yeah, unfortunately, hey, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, unfortunately, the the uh, statistics still say that 75% of all uh, initiated transformations in organizations, whether they be in government, business, or not-for-profit, fail. Uh, and so that's why uh, I, I do what I do is because uh, if we would be able to do so much more for our stakeholder world, if the organizations were able to, to implement 
better uh, operations faster. Yeah, yeah. And and it seems to me that every organization is always pursuing change, right? I've, I've never run into an organization that says, oh, yeah, everything's, you know, everything is just going to be exactly the same next year as it is this year because yeah. we're surrounded by so much change. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that statistic is still mind-blowing, right? You know, when we... <laughs> right. Yeah, and, but we and, keep... You know, but change is, is something uh, um, we all encourage it and we experience it readily, but how to manage an organization through change is not a basic set of knowledge that most leaders have. Most leaders understand what the products and services that you're trying to deliver are. They understand the markets that they're trying to serve. But how do you go from where you are to where you want to be using the resources that what you have? And so the uh, the difference between transformation and then normal change management is how fast do you have to get there? And so mm -hmm. that gets to be another element is uh, how I have to decide, can, can I incrementally get there or do I need to make a dramatic shift right now to be able to survive? Yeah, a lot of people are in that dramatic shift exactly. state, right? Right. Exactly. Things have changed, the economy's changed, the pandemic changed things. I, I think that you, you brought up, that is one of the major impetus of change. And one of the things that I've been encouraging organizations is to not let this opportunity pass you by, because that's one of the bigger concerns about transformation is how do you get people unstuck from where they are? And the pandemic offered an opportunity for so many processes to become unglued and unstuck. So we're able to now analyze more appropriately what the value is and what is actually essential in providing that value. Yeah, I did, I did, I'm seeing people still, though, you know, wanting to go back. You know, I want to go back to yeah, I want, I want to go back to normal. I you know, want to go back to. You know, well, it's not anymore. People people have changed. People are used to working in different places. People are used to working differently. Right. People are used to. Um, you know, using electronics more. You know, yeah, it's so much. So much has changed, um, and uh, the level of trust has changed too. Absolutely. So um, yeah. we're not go we're not going back. Whatever whatever we're moving forward to, we will not be the same as what we came from. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, Carrie, what would be your one piece of advice for a young person starting out? Well, the uh, it has to do with that change. Be ready to continually learn. You're never going to get, never finish learning. And so be prepared to be a lifelong learner. I love that. Be prepared to be a lifelong learner. And that is just, you know, that is just a great theme of this podcast. And, and uh, it's true about elections too, right? Yeah. <laughs> we still have a lot to learn. Right, right. All right, Carrie L. Bass, it has been a real pleasure having a conversation with you. Um, and I wish you all the well, both all the best in, in your um, in your consulting company, but also in the work with ASQ with the Center for Election Integrity, because that is very, very important work and um, keep moving forward. Great. Bella, thank you for having me. It's been a great opportunity to chat with you. Look forward to uh, maybe a future opportunity to do so. This is Bella Engelbach, and I'd like to thank Carrie L. Bass for being my guest at the Ages of Lean. What did you learn from this conversation? What ideas did it spark? And how might you help to improve elections where you live? We would love to hear from you. 
You can find Carrie at makingitreality.com or on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com where you'll find lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbart with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.